All right, welcome back to the fray. This is our seventh episode into the exploration of French mathematician Eberiste de Galois, making great headway into the history of algebra. Announced this last episode, but I am on certain social media now. So if you want to reach out to me, you can via Twitter and Facebook at The Fray Podcast. All right, so let's get started with our seventh episode. So I want to welcome you, whether you're old or new, as you join me as we enter the fray. Do you have a favorite meme? or speaks to something important that you ascribe to, or both. Today, we take the idea of internet memes almost for granted. In some ways, it appears that creating, sharing, and viewing of memes is all that the internet was designed to do. Personally, my life is inundated with them as I live with four teenagers. The meme is such an important part of their life. They are used in place of what I would consider normal types of communication where once a telephone call was the gold standard for at-a-distance communication, just try and get someone in 2021 to answer the phone. And hell hath no fury like what happens when you leave someone a voicemail. You might as well just take a dump in their sock drawer for all the offense caused by what was once thought of as a miracle of technology. The fact that the approved and accepted form of cell phone communication has nothing to do with the traditional functioning of a telephone is telling. We, and in this I mean how our collective minds work, seem to be much more inclined to read a text than answer a phone call or, dread the thought, retrieve a voicemail. It says a lot that memes have affected our methods of communication to the point that verbally engaging someone is considered the last option. And it gets more mimetic when you consider the use of images and emojis are preferred over reading just plain old boring text. When I did work in an office where I hope never to have to return to, me and my fellow co-workers could keep up whole conversations with just clever pictures and emojis. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, but it has quickly become the reality that a meme is worth all the words, especially the spoken ones. But that is the world we live in and that the one my teens will inherit, which is just fine with them. They really had no need of talking no desire to engage another person in the flesh, their world is almost completely viewed through the small screen positioned in their hand, producing an endlessly entertaining stream of fresh memes to LOL over. Which brings me to a little challenge, if you are up to it. The challenge is to have a discussion with a teenager concerning what a meme is. I have tried many times with my brood to delve into the actual level of an understanding they have concerning the devilish addictive bits of effluvia. I try and explain the origins of the term, what it means to be a meme, and what the unstoppable production of the clever little things actually means, not just to their social life, but to life in general. As you would expect, my forays into this type of conversation are typically met with the generational scorn that all generations previous have dealt with in the form of music, art, politics, basically all culture gaps that exist between the old and the young. In my experience, for the average teen, It is simple. Memes are part of the internet. 
that came about because of this technology, or at least whatever was considered a meme prior to the internet, was dramatically changed once the world went wide on the web. And in some ways, they're not wrong. Almost from the beginning, the internet was producing memes. For people over the age of 40, remember the dancing baby? The one that danced to Blue Swede's Hooked on a Feeling? Uka chaka, uka chaka, that song? That was one of the first memes to be pushed by the internet. A nice little nugget of knowledge, the dancing baby was developed by a guy, a web developer named John Woodle, as an example of a new type of image, only possible with the advent of the internet, called the Graphic Interchange Format, or GIF for short. The dancing baby was a meme that demonstrated a method for making more important memes using a new technology. No shit. There is also the weirdly prescient Godwin's Law, which was memed way back in 1990. If you are unfamiliar with this particular meme, it is a more of a hybrid meme, meaning that it is mostly a verbal written style of meme than one that uses imagery, sort of an old school meme. This particular viral offering came into being thanks to a lawyer named Mike Godwin, who on a message board way back in the age of Milli Vanilli posted the following thought. The longer an online discussion goes, the higher the probability that a comparison will be made to Hitler or to Nazis. Oh, how right you were, Mike. How right you were. Now, for my kids, and likely a lot more of the younger generations, there is little or no recognition of the fact that memes existed long before the internet. But I have since given up on the idea of discussing this with them. As the last conversation, they produced an article on the web that asked if a particular picture from the year 1921 was, in fact, the world's first meme. For most of the world, memes involve an image. But as simple of an answer as that is, it is not the correct one. Memes have existed for as long as there have been human minds to create and share them. In many ways, memes can be viewed as the building blocks of human societies. As someone who was raised in a time before the internet and the visual meme, or at least something defined as the visual meme, because you cannot tell me someone like Bowie wasn't memeing his ass off throughout the 70s. But for me particularly, I worked in a world of memes as a kid, although I had no idea what I was doing, because I was a dork, a loser, someone who had a hard time making friends. That is until I unearthed my ability to collect and disseminate viral stories and ideas. That is where summer camp would come in. Throughout my life, I attended many types of camp. A day camp called Melody Pines, an all-boys overnight camp called Camp Mytina. I also attended computer camp, where I learned to program my Commodore 64. Above and beyond all the cool stuff that camps offered, like swimming, campfires, archery, and lack of parents, one of the best parts was hanging out with a large group of like-minded individuals, boys mostly, and exchanging all the funny, weird, gross, and shocking stories. Now, most of the stories were about scary stuff, like a guy named Three-Fingered Willie, who stalked campers. He would wait until you were asleep, and if you were unfortunate enough to sleep with your feet towards the window, he would reach in with his deformed claw of a hand, latch onto your ankle, and rip you out of the cabin. That is how, as an eight-year-old, I was introduced to my cabin mates. One guy, his name is John Van Fleet, is someone who would factor in my life for years in strange ways such as passing along the valuable info that it pays to sleep with your head towards the window to avoid old three-finger. Now, a couple of years later, he would come famous at camp for catching the largest fish in my Tina history by inadvertently getting a large fish hook that had been entangled in his sleeping bag embedded in his upper thigh. It was quite an ordeal that literally did involve a pair of pliers and a blowtorch, 
years before Marcellus Wallace would enter the phrase into the memeplex of our popular culture. Now, I moved from my small town, and coincidentally, my new school and the town that I moved to happened to be where John Van Fleet went. So years after my three-fingered Willie story, at the age of 15, this same guy got drunk and drove his father's Porsche through the back of the garage, a la Ferris Bueller. It was from this guy, this comet of a person that would only appear in my life every so many years and drop memetic bombs into my world and would leave me to deal with them that I learned one of the most enduring stories from summer camp. Of course, not all the stories were of the horror variety. There were also the myriad of urban myths that would be passed around the cabin. A favorite of my time at camp was the story of a kid from the Life Serial television commercials. You know, the picky eater, Mikey. You know, as in, he hates it. He won't eat anything. The story is that Mikey, or at least the young actor who portrayed Mikey, had died from swallowing too many pop rocks and drinking a Coke. His stomach exploded, and you always get an, oh, man, when you told that story about Mikey. Other stories that we latched onto involved Walt Disney's body being frozen and entombed in the castle at Disneyland, razor blades and Halloween candies, spider's nests living in that large hairstyle of the old women in our lives. All of these stories and many more were disseminated and pondered endlessly during those long summer days and nights I spent at summer camp. Now, one thing was for sure, coming from such a small pool of stories that circulated in my small town to a much larger pool of stories was what made camp thrilling for me. A lot of this was due to a much larger, more diverse group of people involved. For a kid from a small town, it was practically like attending a meeting at the United Nations. The kids I met at camp were from all over the state. You know, John Van Fleet was from the largest city in the state. And some of the campers were from places as distant as New York City or even the country of Venezuela. Now, looking back, I can see a major reason for my enjoyment of these stories was not just that they were entertaining or that they were shocking, although that, of course, played a big part in why we liked them so much. For me, it was important that collecting these stories, not just for my enjoyment, but also as capital I could use once I returned to my small town and my small class of peers. If I was able to pass on the grisliest, the most shocking story from over the summer, I could earn much deserved cred with my schoolmates. This leads me to the whopper of all myths that I carried home with me from camp when I was nine. Now, I had spent the summer at Camp Mytina, an all-boys overnight camp, and this is where I became acquainted with the Richard Gere gerbil story for the first time, all thanks to John Van Fleet. Now, he had heard his dad, you know, the guy who owned the Porsche, tell his buddies over Christmas break over cigars and scotch. And that's where John said he heard the craziest story anyone had ever heard. Now, when it comes to a good urban myth, it makes a big difference if you can attach the story to someone famous. Now, the story involves the actor Richard Gere. Now, who at this point in time, you remember it's the summer of 1982, was a breakout star thanks to his role in the movie An Officer and a Gentleman. Now, he had already starred in the movies like uh, American Gigolo and Breathless, and was a popular actor who was not really known by kids my age. You know, he, we knew his name, but we didn't see his movies because his movies were adult-oriented movies. All of them rated R, and, but they weren't action flicks. So boys my age were meh to Richard Gere. That was, of course, until we heard what John Van Fleet had to say. Now, this particular story was so effective because we all understood what a gerbil was, who Richard Gere was, and all of us were acquainted with anuses. It is funny to look back and you have these stories were definitely at least gay curious, if not, in fact, homophobic in nature. 
Now, I, I do remember how puzzling it was for me to consider the hows and the whys of these stories. There was this whole lot of, oh my God, that sounds horrible. Who would ever do such a thing running around my brain? There were also some thoughts to consider that someone as successful as Richard Gere were doing it, then maybe it was worth it? Of course, I say allegedly, because stories like this are almost always not true. Now, in the case of Richard Gere, there is a genesis to the, his winding up as one of the most sticky and viral of pre-internet memes. Now, as I understand it, the rumor, myth, meme of gerbils and asses began very early on in the actor's career. He had been cast in a movie, a drama about youth gangs and queens called The Lords of Flatbush. Now, this movie also starred a very young, pre-Rocky Sylvester Stallone. Now, in rehearsal for the film, Sly and Gear did not get along. I mean, really did not get along. To the point that Richard Gere was removed from the film and replaced by Henry Winkler, a.k.a. the Fonz. Ayyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyyy
We are all built to copy these stories and pass them on. We all do this because maybe we are nothing but meme replication machines whose sole purpose or the sole purpose of our minds or our consciousness is to ensure memes continue to meme. So how powerful are these memes? So let's go to the source of the idea to find out how far-reaching the idea of a mimetic theory of the human mind really is. Back in the late summer of 1982, as I sat in the principal's office, I was not reflecting on any deep stuff concerning memes. I was thinking about how cool everyone was going to think I was, and I didn't even consider why. Of course, I had never heard the term meme before. After all, it had just been coined for the first time only a few years before by a scientist, a zoologist, I think, though he is now called a ethnologist or an evolutionary biologist, a guy named Richard Dawkins. Now, I think he's a Sir, Sir Richard Dawkins. In 1976 is when he coined the term. He coined it in a book called The Selfish Gene, which makes the claim that life as we know it is in the service of one thing, the propagation of our genetic code. Nothing matters more in the functioning of a bacteria, a banana slug, or a ballerina. To paraphrase Brian Adams, everything we do, we do it for genes. It is a very persuasive theory that quickly became popular among scientists and laymen alike. It was easy to understand and made a heck of a lot of sense in explaining some of the missing links in the theory of evolution, though it has recently come under fire, as any theory worth its salt should. So the jury is still out to us whether or not Dawkins is correct, but the man himself has said, quote, any theory deserves to be given its best shot, unquote. Now, those particular words were written for the foreword of another book written a dozen years after Dawkins's Selfish Gene. This book was called The Meme Machine and was written by psychologist and professor Susan Blackmore. Her book, written in 1998, was the first to expound upon a relatively small mention near the end of Dawkins' book. Overall, The Selfish Gene's thesis centers on the idea of what Dawkins called a replicator. True replicators, ones that exist independent in nature, are extremely rare. In fact, at the time of the writing of the book, The Selfish Gene, 1976, there were none. Then Dawkins added a name to a list of natural replicators. Genes. Life as we know it is merely a fleeting sense of being that in reality serves but one function. As an uber of sorts, a temporary haven evolved to as efficiently as possible allow the business of genes to continue being genes. Dawkins explains, quote, Individuals are not stable things. They are fleeting. Chromosomes, too, are shuffled into oblivion like hands of cards soon after they are dealt. But the cards themselves survived the shuffling. The cards are the genes. The genes are not destroyed by crossing over. They merely change partners and march on. Of course they march on. That is their business. They are the replicators, and we are their survival machines. When we have served our purpose, we are cast aside. But genes are Denzians of geological time. Genes are forever. Unquote. As the universe's sole replicator, life had little choice but to comply to the rules and regulations of the genetic code, an empty vessel only given purpose and duty to our selfish genes. But over the course of the book, Dawkins happened upon something remarkable. In the course of redefining the world's first replicator in the form of his egomaniacal genes, he stumbled across another one. Again, Dawkins says, quote, We need a name for this new replicator, a noun that conveys the idea of a cultural unit of transmission or a unit of imitation. My meme, or mimeme, comes from a suitable Greek root, but I wanted a monosyllable that sounds a bit like gene. 
I hope my classicist friends will forgive me if I abbreviate my meme to meme. If it is any consolation, I could alternatively be thought of as being related to memory or to the French word meme. It should be pronounced to rhyme with cream. Examples of memes are tunes, ideas, catchphrases, clothes, fashions, ways of making pots or of building arches. Just as genes propagate themselves in the pool by leaping from body to body via sperm and egg, so memes propagate themselves in the meme pool by leaping from brain to brain via a process which, in a broad sense, can be called imitation, unquote. Twelve years later, Susan Blackmore put forth one of the first attempts at creating a mimetic conception of human consciousness. It is a fantastic read, and I highly recommend it. Remember, it's called The Meme Machine. But for now, in this episode, I'm going to leave the deep dive into memetics to Professor Blackmore and her colleagues. For me, it's enough to understand that memes are not simply funny pictures, but more importantly, is that memes are powerful. They not only make us laugh, but throughout humanity's evolution, they have accompanied us every step of the way. But here is the key point I want to pull from Blackmore, the fact that memes are, at the least, crucial to our understanding of our world. Much like metaphors, which I harp about all the time, memes have been with us so long that some of the most foundational ideas are not thought of as memes at all, but as beliefs. Religions, political movements, and almost anything one could classify as common sense, meaning the world as we commonly sense it, was at some point simply an idea. A meme that someone saw someone else doing and decided to imitate. And that is the very crucial point about memes. They get imitated for the simple reason that they are catchy, viral, maybe even selfish. Because as my time spent passing along the Richard Gere story can attest to, there needs to be not one iota of fact or usefulness in a meme for it to be imitated or to use another word, copied. Just like a gene, a meme requires only one thing of us, to copy it. As Metallica would say, nothing else matters. In fact, it is quite obvious that as far as replicators go, and again, we don't have a lot to choose from, but comparatively, memes are far more efficient than their forebearers, the genes. Look at the timeline for life to evolve to this point on the planet. What did that take? A couple billion years? Now contrast that with consciousness and its ability to replicate memes. How much faster has human civilization, human culture advanced? The pace is staggering. Now, it can be said, and people like Blackmore do exactly that, that in some cases, memes can actively be driving the bus when it comes to how the two replicators interact with each other. While genes started the whole life thing, there is little doubt that memes have made up for lost time. So because memes are incredibly efficient at replication, powerful and in no way need to be factual or correct, they can affect humanity in astounding ways. I would like to read a little bit more from Richard Dawkins on this topic. I think it is a great example of the power of memes. Now, he's talking about the blurred line between who is driving, the genes or the memes. Uh, a little further background, Dawkins is British, hence the Sir Richard Dawkins. Uh, so he went to an elite boarding school type place. So some of their actual rituals may not be very familiar to you. He says, quote, to return to my school again, say a Martian geneticist visiting from Mars visits my school during the morning cold bath ritual they would have unhesitatingly diagnosed an obvious genetic polymorphism, which, by the way, just means a condition like elephantitis that has many forms. Dawkins continues, About 50% of the boys were circumcised and 50% were not. 
The boys, incidentally, were highly conscious of the polymorphism, and we classified ourselves into roundheads versus cavaliers. It is, of course, not a genetic but a mimetic polymorphism. But the Martian's mistake is completely understandable. The morphological discontinuity is of exactly the kind that one normally expects to find produced by genes. Unquote. That reminds me of a line of one of Mrs. The Frey podcast students said to her once. She was a teacher at a preschool at the time, and a little boy exited the bathroom and asked her, Do you know what comes out of my mushroom? Mrs. The Frey podcast shook her head. Power. Anyway, Blackmore's book goes as far as attributing the size of brains, the invention of language, even the creation of communication devices up to and including the most complex of computers as being driven by one and only one undeniable process, the replication of memes. It is hard not to be seduced by a mimetic theory of consciousness. For me, it hits on many of my big beliefs, stuff like denying the individual self the I that exists inside our head, or the fact that something can, other than the human impetus or a deity is the actual motive force behind the world. In my case, I ascribe to being what I called an entropist. That is, believing that all life, as a result of playing by the same rules as the rest of the universe, serve one purpose, the same purpose as everything else, which is to expand as much energy as possible, speeding up the entropic process. In many ways, Blackmore's theory validates the idea that a process on its own can be the reason we are here. Of course, there is a much more accepted and famous process, namely evolutionary theory, which incidentally has at its core a basic algorithm that can, over a long enough period of time, produce the richness and variety of life on this planet, all without a master plan or a master planner. Now, I've been utilizing her book all episode without letting her speak, so I'll let Professor Blackmore explain the evolutionary algorithm. She says, quote, Darwin's argument requires three main features, variation, selection, and retention, or heredity. That is, first, there must be variation so that not all creatures are identical. Second, there must be an environment in which not all the creatures can survive and some varieties do better than others. Third, there must be some process by which offspring inherit characteristics from their parents. If all these are in place, then any characteristics that are positively useful for survival in the environment must tend to increase. Put into Richard Dawkins's language, if there is a replicator that makes imperfect copies of itself, only some of which survive, then evolution simply must occur. This inevitability of evolution is part of what makes Darwin's insight so clever. All you need is the right starting conditions and everything just has to happen. Unquote. That's pretty solid reckoning, I reckon. And if they were to take away anything from the understanding of a mindless process like evolution, it is that following the rules, say stuff like laws of thermodynamics, then equally mindless processes could also be in motion. Processes that, as a byproduct, created life. Another way I like to put it is, just like Legionnaire's disease, there's a high likelihood that we are just the schmutz that is clinging to the exhaust vent of the universe. You know, provided the proper conditions, we were inevitable. But that is taking the macro look at things. Zooming into the individual human level, it is a far different story. The tale we tell ourselves, the one that consists of our very own capital I, self, we are quite sure that we are not only special, but also that we are exceedingly rare. But if we listen to Blackmore, we are only rare in the sense that it is in our ability to imitate. 
in our ability to create and share memes. And yes, I'm using the past tense because we ain't so rare these days when it comes to passing along memes. Online bots do a far better job of it than we ever did. Most of us consider ourselves special and rare in far different ways than Blackmore does. Our I-ness is not defined by scientific theories. It is defined by our personality, our history, our story, our friends and family, our thoughts, worries, and dreams. The rich tapestry of the self appears at once super simple and very complex. But no matter how sure of yourself you are or how overwhelmed you are by the mysteries of your being, you, like every human before and probably after as well, will spend most of your time, especially when interacting with others, creating, sharing, and defining your world with memes. Which is where algebra comes back into the picture. Taking what Blackmore calls the meme's eye view of things, then it is apparent that algebra is a meme. Not exclusively, of course, it is also a tool, a branch of mathematics both applied and theoretic, and for someone like me, a cause of great anxiety. But it is no doubt a meme, a pretty durable one. In fact, as we have learned over the first six episodes of this podcast series. What makes algebra particularly mimetic for me is the fact that, in many ways, its history was a story part myth, part material, being passed on by generations of like-minded people who found the power to reunite broken parts so fascinating, but also so befuddling. All mysteries can be answered, promised the Egyptian scribe Ahms at the beginning of his papyrus. Once you learn its secrets, you will never not know truths, claimed a 12th century mathematician after reading Al-Khwarizmi. Now, these words certainly sound like they're itching to be passed on, like an enticing bait that lures the fish in. A promise of truth and answers to the world's mysteries was a surefire way to pique human interest. Just ask corporate religion. But that is what makes algebra different. There is the other side of the coin, the practical rules-based side that eschewed any tall tales or promises. Solve for X, get the answer, restore what was once broken, and make it whole. It is exciting because we find ourselves at the start of modernity, the beginning of the society whose basic construction we are still living with. Math and all types of learning and exploration are about to explode, finally freeing themselves from the horror of the plague and surviving an almost deadly aftermath. The Western world is about to kick off, in grand style, the modern world by way of its commonly known as the Renaissance. And algebra will be there, just waiting for its time to shine. Even more exciting to me is that I start to dig a little deeper into equations themselves. I know, right? Can you believe it? Me talking equations? I mean, I'm almost envious of you, listener. I, of course, am always hearing myself talk dirty mathematically. You are about to experience it for one of those rare times. So sit back, relax, and make yourself more comfortable. Maybe grab a beverage, whatever floats your pickle. Now, the ancient Sumerians started the ball rolling with what we call linear equations. These are the most basic of equations as they are solving for one unknown, typically represented by the letter X. It's where we get the term solve for X. So, for instance, Sargon's mom is at the weed store and she buys some dragon fruit flavored CBD gummies for 50 bucks after receiving a 20 bucks senior discount. What was the original price of the CBD gummies? Well, if I remember correctly, X would stand for the OG price of the gummies and the linear equation would look something like X minus 20 equals 50. You can then perform some algebraic magic by adding 20 to both sides of the equation, after which you would get x minus 20 plus 20 equals 50 plus 20. Breaking that down like a 10 at Coachella, you get x minus 0 equals 70. And with one more step, the answer appears, almost like magic, x equals 70. 
quite a deal, Sargon's mom. Now, this is about the height attained by ancient algebra, especially the Egyptians. In over 3,000 years of existence, this was as far as they got. Now, the Sumerians actually had worked up the ability to solve the next type of equation on the hit list, and that one is solving not just for 1x, but 2. Now, these type of equations are called quadratic. The Sumerians would routinely solve equations for two unknowns. Most often, they would do so within the scope of determining who gets how much land. Now, this is due to the fact that there were three unknowns in the process of divvying up land. That is, length, which they used the term us, width, which they used the term sag, and area, which they used the term asa. So old Sargon and his cronies loved the fact that they could just get one piece, say sag, and work out the rest of their us and their asa. Now, for instance, say a Sumerian landscaper was attempting to determine the size of a lawn to determine the best place for his customer's seven-foot phallic statue. He may know the overall size of the lot he is working on, but he needs to determine just the size of the lawn, which runs a quarter of the length of the yard, which measures seven hands in length. Now, overall, the length and width of the lot is 10 hands. You would have two unknowns this time, the length and the width, represented by X and Y, respectively. Now, the Sumerian landscaper would write it out something like this. One quarter Y plus X equals seven as one equation, and X plus Y equals 10 as the other. He would then proceed to solve the equations in a very similar manner as the linear equations were, by adding and subtracting X and Y from both sides of respective equations and solving for each one after that. Phew, was it good for you? So that's it, though. That's the extent of the down and dirty world of algebra. Well, forever, or at least for almost 5,000 years, because after the Sumerians, no one would, not the Greeks, not Diophanes, not Al-Khwarizmi, no one advanced algebra any further than the basic quadratic equations. For a lot of that time, it can be said that the majority of the world had no use for anything more complex than that say, solving for three unknowns, what is known as a cubic equation. But there were plenty of dudes, some highly influential ones that we have covered, like the ones I just rattled off, that wanted to. Some of them played around with the idea of solving something like a qubit or GASP, a quartic equation, and can you believe it, four unknowns. But as the centuries passed, no one did. But the idea kept getting passed on. All the mysteries will be unlocked. Only the truth will be known. As I was walking into St. Ives, I met a man with six wives. The idea of algebra was kept alive throughout the years, mostly by being a very addictive mimetic virus. Those who were infected could and would find it hard to stop thinking, to stop puzzling about what could be. And even more importantly, they were able to pass on their ideas, make copies of them, have people of future generations imitate them. This brings us to the Renaissance and one of my favorite all-time mathematical stories. It is a story that finally gives algebra the center stage. As you will soon see, not as the world-changing mathematical engine powering our modern society, but instead as an almost exclusively as a meme, and not the deep mimetic theoretic meme of Blackmore and Dawkins, but much more like the memes of my teenagers. Meaningless, exceedingly catchy ideas that are spread from person to person, mind to mind, simply because they've evolved to do so. You see, after surviving thousands of years of solitude, algebra will be given the spotlight, but not as a shining example of what collective human reason can produce, but instead more like a contestant on a reality singing competition. 
For the Renaissance would be known for amazing works of art and intellect. From Michelangelo to da Vinci, there was no shortage of genius on display. But when it came to algebra, in a cruel twist of fate, it nary was a participant in all the glory. Instead, it got its center stage, but instead of an exalted perch atop the intellectual firmament, algebra was relegated to the world of entertainment. That's right, algebra would be in the time of the Renaissance, be more like a sideshow, a public puzzle performed in front of crowds of onlookers. It was like the Rubik's Cube or the Jeopardy question of its time. What it wasn't was important and surely hadn't advanced much since the days of our Sumerian landscaper. Well, thanks to the theory of memetics, that was about to change. So let's set the stage for one of mathematics' most memorable and outright zany episodes. After surviving both the Mongols and the bubonic plague, algebra finds itself percolating throughout the Italian peninsula. Now, I've used the Renaissance loosely up until this point, but it was truly an Italian phenomenon, at least the most famous instances of the term, since city-states like Verona, Genoa, Florence, Venice, and Naples, along with Rome, dominated the social, financial, and spiritual lives of most Europeans, it was clear that, although mostly limited to one area of the continent, the Renaissance was very much a continental movement. Concerning the matter at hand, the story I'm about to tell you takes place exclusively on the Italian peninsula. It involves some of the wildest characters to emerge from this time in history. If all the accounts of this story are to be believed, is the tale filled with ambition, betrayal, blackmail, inquisition, torture, double poisonings, intellectual copyrights, gambling, and the horoscope of none other than Jesus Christ himself. Oh yeah, and it had a ton of algebra in it too. But not the stodgy old algebra we know and loathe today, but a wholly different sort of algebra altogether. If one did have a time machine or a sweet-ass holodeck a la Star Trek, then taking a new algebra student back to this time in history would be extremely useful. Because back then, in the time of da Vinci, algebra had gone, in popular parlance, what we would call viral. The idea of algebra had exploded in the minds of the Renaissance, outpacing the standard ideas of the day and creating its own reality through the thirsty minds of the awakening modern world. It was not what the ruling class of the day would use to define math. It was not being discussed at the top universities of the day. Well, at least not officially. It was like all great generational memes. It was not in the light of the intellectual day where algebra was flourishing, but on the edges, in the fading illumination provided to them in their rooms, in the cafeterias and gardens, and lots of long walks. There, algebra was, at long last, after thousands of years on the fringes, beginning to take hold of the collective conscious. Where we last left algebra was, like the mammals after the dinosaurs croaked, just starting to come out of the shadows. The main reason for algebra's ascent into the minds of the thinkers of the day is because it was like a puzzle, like a Rubik's Cube or Sudoku. It engaged the problem-solving portion of a people's brain. Problem-solving portion of people's brains being just one or two generations removed from the abject horror show that was the plague, the Western mind was indeed searching for something to take their minds off things, even for a little while. And algebra accepted the challenge and proved to be an extremely formidable puzzle. Up until this point, we covered a few minutes ago, a solution to a version of quadratic equations had been known for thousands of years. But that's it. Now, bear in mind, however, that the actual quadratic formula using capital letters, was not yet a thing at the time of this story. That formula, 
credited to a guy named Simon Stevan, or Simone Stevan, uh, was attained 60 years or so later in 1597. So we're not there yet. So even though there was a quadratic equation out there solution, they hadn't really cracked that nut yet either. Regardless of the formula or not, there was a known solution to the linear and at least some quadratic equations, and that is it. For all of human history, we have never made it past the first semester of pre-algebra taught to middle schoolers. And the big brains of the Renaissance, they were having no luck in advancing mathematical knowledge, and it was really starting to bother them. Starting almost 150 years before obtaining that quadratic formula, Italian mathematicians had been trying to up the ante and solve the next level of equations, one where there are three unknowns. Now, this type of equation is known as a cubic. Now, I want to make sure I mention that I get a lot of the story from a great little book by Mario Livio entitled The Equation That Couldn't Be Solved. Now, to save time, all my quotes from here on out are from his book. Now, back to the cubic. Now, they are useful, just in case you're wondering, at attempting to find the volume of a solid. So we use those all the time. But despite the best efforts of the best minds of generation after generation of mathematicians in Italy failed to find a solution, finally, over a century of futility was summed up by a guy named Luca Pacioli, a mathematician and writer who penned a 600-page mastodon of a book with the snappy title, The Collected Knowledge of Arithmetic, Geometry, proportions, and proportionality, in which he drops this truth bomb on his fellow renaissancers. Quote, for the cubic, it has not been possible to form general rules, unquote. And just like that, the desire to find a solution to the cubic really took off. Like any good meme, having an antagonist to help spread the infection is never a bad thing. Being told that they were not up to the task, that up until now, they had not been able to make possible this achievement, was taken as a challenge to Italian mathematicians, professional and amateurs alike. After Brother Luca threw down the gauntlet, it was game on. Now enter the son of a papermaker, professor of mathematics at his alma mater, the University of Bologna, the esteemed Scipione del Ferro. By all accounts, this was an unassuming chap who happened to love numbers. It is assumed that he attended his hometown University of Bologna. It is not known for sure, though. Though he is credited as being a whiz at algebra, nothing of his writings survive. We only know of his achievement through others' quest to solve the cubic after the fact. For this is a peculiar facet of the intellectual world of the Italian Renaissance. A scholar who, say, solves a type of a cubic equation would, for good reason, choose to not tell anyone sometimes taking the idea to their grave without telling a soul. Now, there are a couple reasons for this. The first is what I have said before, that algebra was a fad, a generational obsession that would pass in time. The quest to solve the cubic was a very non-practical pursuit, so most of the world didn't care. In many cases, there was only one place that did care, and that was the university. Now, each major Renaissance city boasted its own world-class university. Bologna, home to Del Ferro was and is the oldest of them. It was founded in 1088 and is to this day the oldest continuingly operating university in Europe. The speciality of the students who attend Bologna U was and is mathematics. And eventually, one of its own would solve a version of a cubic equation. Here's looking at you, Scipione, but choose to tell no one. Now, for you math nerds out there, the actual equation he solved which he called, quote, unknowns in cubes equal to numbers, unquote, which today would be read 
AX cubed plus BX equals C. I just mentioned that there was a good reason for this type of thinking, which flies directly in the face of how the modern world deals with breakthroughs. But for homies like Scipione del Ferro, he probably did have a good reason to keep his groundbreaking a secret. This is because of the great university system and the unique requirement that both prospective and sitting professors of mathematics would have at some point participate in a math duel. Now, when I say duel, I do not mean the type with weapons, the kind that cost Evariste Galois his life. What I do mean is a duel in which math problems are solved instead of paces marked off or triggers pulled or blades swung. That's right, the intellectual centers of the Renaissance would routinely hold mano a mano math fights that were attended by the leading celebrities, moguls, and royalty of the day, right alongside the rabble of the commoners. It seems that unlike any other time in human history, algebra had attained something that most other intellectual pursuits never can aspire to attain, and that is, for a time, algebra was cool. This is how Mario Livio puts it, quote, Bologna in the 16th century experienced a surge of interest in mathematics. Mathematicians and other scholars were involved in public debates and oral disputations that attracted large crowds. In attendance were not only university officials and appointed judges, but also students, supporters of the contestants, and spectators who came for entertainment and betting opportunity. Often, the competitors themselves would wager considerable amounts of money on their anticipated victory. According to one description, mathematicians were interested in such confrontation of wits because of their results. And here Livio is going to quote a writer from the Renaissance, meaning that writer says their results, quote, depended not only on their reputation in the city or university, but also tenure of appointment and increase in salary. Disputations took place in public squares, in churches, and courts kept by noblemen and princes who esteemed it an honor to count among their retinue scholars not only skilled in the casting of astrological predictions, but also in disputations on difficult and rare mathematical problems, unquote. Huh. It's telling that a person writing from the time connects algebra to astrology. What an amazing example of catching a viral idea on the way up, passing another viral idea that is on the way down. I mean, algebra had captured the public's fascination in much the same way that the studies of the signs and the stars had. The telling difference between these two, other than their trajectories, was that one of them, upon further investigation, would prove capable of supporting concepts such as proof, fact, and truth, and one most certainly would not. Now, it does bring up the question of whether or not it mattered at all if the mathematicians got the correct answers. I mean, considering that casting the correct horoscope did not rely on anything other than the perception and skill of the caster and the gullibility of the castee. But that is something that bears itself out in practice. Despite its relation in the minds of the time to an art like astrology, algebra, thanks to all the peeps of the past that we've covered throughout this series, was and is at its heart a rigorous path to truth that brokers no bullshit. For millennia, the negative, irrational, imaginary world that algebra could produce was shunned. Not because it didn't work, but because human consciousness was unable to process how it worked, much less why it worked. And maybe they never would. So like many giant ideas, algebra, after thousands of years of trying to solve the mysteries of the world, holding no secrets unknowable, had to change tactics. It seemed that humans could give a shit about stuff like knowing anything or solving the unknown. 
So instead, algebra, the idea of restoration and completion, became a sideshow, a public contest of wits that most, if not all, of the audience had little or no understanding of the actual processes that were being obtained through these algebraic thunderdomes, a place where two men enter and algebra leaves. Now, this was not a new phenomenon. Now, I have held the belief for years that the Old Testament God got a new PR team and decided to soften the edges a bit, concentrate on the positive stuff, and voila, you get Jesus and his New Testament. Now, this type of behavior is to be expected when it comes to memes, as they obey the basic tenets of evolution's algorithm. There are a variety of ideas. There are limited places for these ideas to exist, and the ideas are copyable. Given these conditions, it was inevitable that the Old Testament God's message would undergo a transformation, morphing and changing as it copied and grew, as more and more mutations are adopted that drive one and only one process, the successful replicating of the idea. Simple from a scoreboard sense of the word, you have to grant what the numbers tell us about corporate religion on this planet. In the Thunderdome of faith-based systems, New Testament Christianity runs Bartertown. So algebra, obeying the same rules of memetics as the religious memeplex, morphs into something new. Something that both awes the masses, but occupies the masters, up and until the point that it is too late. By the time anyone decides to ask why or how, algebra has seeped into the very pores of the Western world, not through the front door, but ushered in the servant's entrance as just another part of the entertainment. Though much was riding on what someone could prove about algebra, it was nothing that anyone did much with once they became part of a university. Math, though it was studied throughout Europe, was still considered secondary to words. Words could inspire men. They could start wars. They could end wars. They could describe true love and condemn the worst traitor. Numbers were capable of none of those things. But for some reason, people loved watching it being done in public, or at least in the Renaissance. And it is probably more accurate to attribute the gravitas of winning a high-profile algebra disputation more to appearance than to applicability. Everyone loves a winner, and during the Renaissance, Everyone really loved anyone who could get down, quadratically speaking. So a lot was riding on not only what you knew, but how well you could recall and utilize that knowledge in a public, sometimes hostile setting. In a situation like that, it probably does pay to keep your cards close to the vest for as long as you can. And in the case of Scipio Del Ferro, he almost took it too far. But luckily, Del Ferro actually did tell two people. One, his son-in-law, the fantastically named Annabale della Nave, and a student friend of his, a Venetian dude named Antonio Maria Fiore. There is also a manuscript that came into the possession of Annabale della Nave, that's the son-in-law, after Del Ferro died. By all indications, Del Ferro's desire to keep his cubic solution a secret, and remember, this is not a general formula that we are talking about here, but just a specific type of cubic equation, Nonetheless, it was something of extreme value, hence the reason for keeping it secret for just the right time. But if one is to grant Del Ferro's logic in keeping his discovery a secret, then one must also grant that there are different paths that can be taken when someone is in possession of something of value. Scipione Del Ferro's decision to keep it to himself appears to be one made out of a defensive consideration, just in case I need it or want to get a new job or get more money or have to squish an upstart it is best to have something in reserve. And that is the last concern. 
of fending off competition that indicates that naturally others would make a wholly different decision if they were to come into such valuable knowledge. And the Venetian schoolmate that happened to be one of the two living souls that Scipione divulged a secret to, that Antonio Maria Fiore decided to do just that. For you see, these people, the ones history remembers, the movers and the shakers of the Renaissance, were not just aware of the concept of being Machiavellian, they were actually living it. The win-at-all-cost methodology espoused by Machiavelli in his classic treatise on Renaissance power dynamics, The Prince, was not theoretical in the least at this point in history. Even though for some people this story is simply about math and the men who pushed the discipline to new and greater heights, these mathematicians were living in a cutthroat reality that was born out of the oil and vinegar confusion of living in such close proximity to a truly existential event like the plague and forging out the mold of the modern world. Now, if you have read The Prince and wondered how real it actually all was, something as esoteric as algebra and the battles that are about to ensue should give you clear indication that life was a little crazy town back then, to say the least. In 1535, armed with a cubic solution, Antonio Fiore decided that it was time for him to make a name for himself in the world of mathematics. There was something he had determined based on what he felt was his ace in the hole, the Del Ferro solution to the cubic equation. AX cubed plus BX equals C. Fiore was extremely confident that he was in possession of the one of the only solutions known to mankind for a cubic equation. He was certain no one else was even close, for what had Pacioli written? That it was not possible. Fiore smelled opportunity. It was time for him to pick an adversary and challenge them to battle of algebra, what Marco Livio calls a public problem-solving contest. In possession of the only known solution to a cubic equation, Fiore decided to choose a mathematician who had recently boasted that he himself had, in fact, back in 1530, had solved a different version of a cubic equation. Now, this equation was different, as I said, than the one Del Faro had worked on and passed on to Fiore. Now, Fiore didn't believe that this fellow had cracked any cubic in any way, so he made what to Fiore must have seemed like an easy mark, so a boastful man, right? probably taken right out of Machiavelli. The man Fiore chose to throw down with was a guy from a town called Brescia. His name was Niccolo Fontana, but he is almost universally known by the name Tartaglia. Now, this was due to a pronounced stammering problem that started when he was 12 years old after taking a French saber to the face during battle. That's right, he was 12. He sustained a long scar that crossed his mouth, making him stumble over his words when he spoke. For this reason, he grew a thick beard, which he would keep for the remainder of his life. Tartaglia literally means the stammerer. Now, Fiore's plan was to challenge Tartaglia to an algebra duel, using what he thought was the only cubic solution out there. Even though Fiore was aware of Tartaglia's boast that he had also solved a version of the equation, Fiore decided to call Tartaglia's bluff. Besides, the specific equation that Tartaglia was purported to have solved was not the same type of cubic equation as the one that Fiore had learned from Del Faro. One does have to wonder if the apparent speech impediment was actually something that Fiore and others thought made Tartaglia an easy mark. In any event, the two sides agreed upon a date of the battle, which was to be February 12, 1535. Each man was to produce 30 algebra problems that they would present to each other to solve. The winner of the contest would be the man who solved more equations. 
This particular battle was for glory and riches, and there was no teaching position in play. There would be wagers of money, and the loser would have to be on the hook for a large banquet to honor the victor. For men of meager means like mathematicians, this was no small order, and as great as winning this type of contest was, losing one held the chance that it could render the loser insolvent, unable to support themselves. That is, without picking up everything and moving somewhere else to start over. This particular algebra battle is exactly what I was talking about earlier when I said that algebra was not only surviving, but was beginning to thrive during the Renaissance, not as a tool to make things more efficient, to improve the lives of people, but merely as a form of entertainment, as something to do and talk about, to pass along to others one's understanding of, or if one was lucky, the mastery of this form of math that was more like a puzzle than a task. This fever to achieve greater and greater success at solving these puzzles was nothing short of a mimetic explosion. Now, we can see this in the fact that as a whole, the men working out these equations, very likely doing so in public, did so on an equation-by-equation basis. And not once did they lump all the cubic-type equations under one group, like we do now. It seemed as if the mathematicians were merely showing off, if they could, the ability to solve tricky puzzles. Doing so held no practical benefit, or so they thought. And not only was there no overriding formula to the equations they were working on, they, according to the intelligentsia of the day, didn't even believe that cubic equations had anything in common. Now, recall, as of the date of the Fiore-Tartaglia battle, we were still 60 years before the quadratic equation themselves would be grouped together and determined solvable by a formula. Now, up until then, the contest of wits that peeps like Fiore and Tartaglia would participate in were little more than a Rubik's Cube solving contest, or even the work of some sort of magic or illusionist. At least to many of the spectators were concerned. I mean, if it wasn't something like this, and it was simply math being worked on as we know it, would it have attracted any crowds in the first place? There was plenty of competition for entertainment back then. Public torture, executions, wild animal fights, music, art, plays, all there fighting for the same entertainment lira. The math battles were as popular as any of them. And there was a reason for this, and the reason was memes. When February 12th arrived, the two men, Tartaglia and Fiore, appeared on stage in Venice, and many of the city's dignitaries were in attendance. There was much anticipation for this showdown as the promise of the cubic being solved was high. Something that had bested the most prestigious minds of Europe for over a century and a half. People may that day see something impossible. Now, one more piece of background concerning these types of intellectual battles. They were almost never settled on the same day as they start. In fact, the ground rules for this particular showdown were that the contestants would have up to 40 days to work on their problems before a solution was offered. All of this would happen in public, meaning that for over a month, it was possible to show up and view some guy on a hastily constructed stage scribbling away at a blackboard, all the while taking some verbal and maybe even some physical abuse from the assembled crowd. Now, I restate my belief that this would be an excellent opportunity to bring a burgeoning mathematical mind to view the spectacle that can be created, even when the subject is something as dry and so-called boring as algebra. I mean, on February 12, 1535, Fiore and Tartaglia ascended the stairs onto the stage, swapped their 30 problems in front of a crowd, and everyone settled in for an extended battle for the crown of Master of the Cubit. And to the shock of the crowd, in little over two hours, the stammerer, Tartaglia, had solved all 30 of the problems that his challenger, Fiore, had presented to him. 
This was extremely rare and an altogether groundbreaking performance by Tartaglia. To make matters worse, the man behind the challenge in the first place, Fiore, with supposedly the secret to Cubic stashed as his ace in the hole, was not able to solve even one of the equations presented to him. Not one. In retrospect, the results shouldn't be that surprising. Fiore indeed did have only but one equation that he could solve, the equation ax cubed plus bx equals c. All 30 of the equations that he presented Tartaglia were in this format. Now, on the other hand, Fiore was presented with 30 different equations by Tartaglia, none of them the one he had a solution for. The stammerer had, unbeknownst to Fiore, not only solved one type of cubic years earlier, but had in fact just recently obtained a formula for solving a bunch of different types of cubic equations. One of them happened to be the one that Fiore was using that Del Ferro obtained and passed on to him. Tartaglia himself would break down what happened at the duel. Quote, the reason why I was able to solve his 30 problems in so short a time is that all 30 concerned work involving the algebra of unknown and cubes equaling numbers. He did this believing that I would be unable to solve any of them because Frau Luca Pacioli asserts in his treatise that it is impossible to solve such problems by any general rule. However, by good fortune, only eight days before the time fixed for collecting from the notary the two sets of sealed problems, I had discovered the general rule for such equations. On the other, I had produced 30 diverse problems, each one a different kind, to show Fiore that I had thought little of him and had no cause whatsoever to fear him." Unquote. And seemingly overnight, Tartaglia would become famous as the only master of the cubic on earth. It is interesting to note that the solution that Tartaglia was able to obtain was a very complex and unwieldy one. It kind of reminds me of something that I would have come up with in my days of high math anxiety. He came up with a poem to help him remember all the steps necessary to solve his cubic. It's worth a listen. In cases where the cube and the unknown together equal some whole numbers known, find first two numbers differing by that same. Their products then, as is the common fame, will equal one-third cubed of your unknown, the residue of their cubed roots when shown. And properly subtracted, next I will give your main unknown as I live. As the second matter of this kind, when cubed by one side lonely, you shall find. The other terms together being bound, two numbers from that one, once they are found. Together multiplied, swift as a bird, give product clear and simple of one third. Cubed of the unknown, by common precept there, you take cube rooted, add them if you please, to achieve your object in their sum with ease. The third case, now in these are little sums, from the second is solved, for as it comes, in kind it is the same, so say I, these things I have found. O oh, say not tardily, in thrice five hundred, four and thirty more, of this our age, the gallant proofs in store, where cities girt by Adriatic shore. So that is what counted for a general formula of cubics in 1535, Renaissance Italy. And like the many obtainers of algebra's missing solutions, Tartaglia would not make his solution public. He would choose to hold on to the solution, riding the wave of fame he attained into a professorship at his local university in the town of Brescia. Now, fame can be both a blessing and a curse. Tartaglia was reveling in his status, and word of his groundbreaking performance spread far and wide, for his was not the only big brain that found this new algebra wrangling worthy of their interests. 
This is where we take it up a notch as the party is about to get a little bit more wild as we introduce one of the Renaissance's most notorious and in many ways important figures that no one has really ever heard of. The man I'm talking about is one Gerolamo or Gerolamo Cardano. And he was one of the most influential thinkers and more importantly, doers of the Renaissance. But for some reason, the public at large knows little or nothing about this very important contributor to the modern world. Now, Cardano is one of those historical figures whose life seems just to be a little bit bigger than possible. A little bit more of a tall tale than an actual life that could be lived. Starting right away at his birth, which came about only after multiple attempts to abort him had failed. Cardano came into the world kicking and screaming on the 24th of September, 1501, and he really never stopped over his 75 years of life. Cardano was a true Renaissance man. It's just that his areas of expertise were not the traditional ones that were held in high esteem from that period, like painting or sculpture or architecture. Instead, Cardano took a slightly different path. He started out as a bastard, as we said, the illegitimate son of a Milanese lawyer. Now, this type of start did not bode well for anyone, but Cardano was nothing if not enterprising, and he most certainly had the mind to achieve his goals. He started out as a young man by making his name as a gambler. He was extremely successful at winning all sorts of wagers, large and small, and in many ways he was loathed for it, as it appears if he was using some sort of supernatural knowledge to assist him in winning. Now, it turns out that what Cardano was using wasn't magic, it was math. It seems that all on his own, Cardano had figured out probabilities and how to manipulate them to his advantage. Incidentally, that is how I first came across his name years ago in a book I was reading concerning statistics. Because on top of being brilliant, Cardano also liked to write and he most certainly liked to brag. So after a long stream of success, wagering on just about anything you can place a bet on, Gerolamo wrote a book, probably the first of its kind, all about the percentages and probabilities inherent in gambling. He wrote all about it in a book entitled The Book on Games of Chance, and in it he laid out the basic principles of probability. This insight into the world of numbers came about almost two centuries before notable figures like Fermat and Pascal began their forays into this extremely powerful form of mathematics. Born with a powerfully loud voice and a confrontational manner, the man, Cardano, made an extremely interesting and provocative dinner guest. Having made himself widely known and wealthy through his heroic feats of wagering, Cardano turned his sights on a new frontier, that of medicine. That's right, just when you thought he was going to zig straight into algebra, he instead zags his way toward a wholly different type of speciality. And like most things that Cardano did, he also happened to excel at being a doctor. And at this point is where some of his notoriety would come back to haunt him. Despite being one of the most educated and successful practitioners of medicine in Italy, he failed time and time again to gain certification as a physician. No matter how strongly he made his case, how many people he helped with his particular brand of medicine, a brand that seemed altogether crazy back then in the Renaissance, but to us would seem like something a typical family doctor would be like, Cardano was turned away by the medical establishment time and time again. So what was someone to do when they were stonewalled like this? Well, find a big hammer to knock down that wall. And as for the type of hammer, Cardano chose as his implement the written word and published a scathing book on the current state of the medical institutions in Europe entitled Of Bad Practices in Medicine in Common Use, a book that he took only a week to write. He took major issue with just about everything to do with the current state of medicine, advocating for a patient 
holistic view of a person's health instead of the knee-jerk guessing and reliance on wives' tales and superstition, which was at the core of the issue. He would write that the result of the tribal insecurities of men who bandied themselves together and showed to the world a surface of pomp and learning that satisfactorily concealed from the beholders the depth of ignorance beneath. Unquote. In many ways, Cardano's polemic against the medical profession sounded a lot like politicians do today, which is not so surprising given the lofty status and exceptions that medieval doctors enjoyed. Cardano would write, quote, The things which give most reputation to a physician nowadays are his manners. Servants, carriage, clothes, smartness, and caginess, all displayed in sort of an artificial and insipid way. Learning and experience seem to count for nothing, unquote. For the writer Cardano, this would prove to be one of the most popular books he would write. He would write over 200 of them in his lifetime, especially among the average European who had been suffering under the pomp of the medical community for centuries. As for Cardano, the professional physician, despite its crude tone and insulting broadsides against the medical community, in a twist of fate, a short time after publication, he would actually be certified a physician and ascend to being one of Europe's top three doctors, at one point traveling all the way to Edinburgh in Scotland to treat the archbishop there. He was able to successfully administer to his eminence by determining that the old boy was allergic to the feathers in his bed. Now, practicing medicine without certification writing a bellicose diatribe against the medical establishment, these type of risk-reward actions were true to form for Cardano. They were major gambles that, like most of his decisions during this time, came up smelling like roses. Surveying the intellectual landscape in 1535, Cardano, having conquered the world of gambling and medicine, set his one-of-a-kind intelligence on mounting an assault on math. It was a subject that Cardano was about to write about for the second time. You know, he has his probabilities book to assist in the understanding of, of this man's place in the pantheon of great Renaissance minds, consider that he was encouraged to write this next book by none other than the person to which the term Renaissance man was coined, that being, of course, Leonardo da Vinci. And it is important to note that their relationship, which being one of advisor and advisee, was in fact da Vinci who sought the counsel of Gerolamo, who played the mentor to Leo's mentee. Engaged in writing as the second book of mathematics entitled The Practice of Arithmetic and Simple Menstruation, word had reached Cardano of the absolute destruction of Fiore to the stammerer Tartaglia. He thought it would make a great addition to his book, so he sent a message through a bookseller who was acquainted to both men asking Tartaglia to divulge the solution to the cubic. Tartaglia responded, quote, Tell His Excellency that he must pardon me, that when I publish my invention, it will be in my own work and not in that of others. So His Excellency must hold me excused. As was mentioned earlier, in the very stew that Machiavelli was living in, a single denial is hardly enough to keep someone as aggressive as Cardano at bay. Through a series of more and more grandiose requests, Cardano does his best to woo the answer from Tartaglia, who rebuffs all the salvos. Possibly relying on a medical or even gambling connection, Cardano secures the bait that would draw Tartaglia to a face-to-face meeting. The particular bit of cheese that was offered up was a meeting with a muckety-muck in the Spanish military who was seeking assistance in deploying more devastatingly effective artillery. Now, a gig like that would pay handsomely, so Tartaglia took the bait. The men met in the city of Milan, and by all reports, Cardano spared no expense. 
After days of push and pull, give and take, the detente was broken and Tartaglia is reported to have divulged his solution to the cubic. Like a version of the film Rashomon, however, there seems to be more than one story. The first story comes from Cardano's secretary, a man named Ludvico Ferrari. Now, he's going to play a prominent role in the rest of the story, and he starts off with a bang because he was actually allegedly at the conversation where the Brescian Tartaglia was supposedly given freely of his invention in payment for the lavish hospitality heaped on him by his gracious host. Now, that's one side of the story. On the other side, Tartaglia recounts that not only was he asked to keep it a secret, Tartaglia extracted this oath from Cardano. Quote, I swear to you by the sacred gospel and in my faith as a gentleman, not only never to publish your discoveries, if you tell them to me, but I also promise and pledge my faith as a true Christian to put them down in cipher so after my death, no one should be able to understand them, unquote. Hmm. These two stories don't seem to have a lot in common, other than the fact that they sound exactly like the personalities of the men involved. You know, Cardano Ferrari, they're kind of trolling, a little self-aggrandizing, you know, like owning the stammerer. And then there's Tartaglia, you get dramatic, insular, and paranoid. So which guy do you believe? Now, Cardano published his book on basic menstruation, and wait for it, he did it without Tartaglia's solution. Now, you thought the guy had no scruples. You thought he was going to publish it. But by this point in his life, Cardano had reached a certain level of respectability. Now, this was apparent to him as he had already toned down much of his wild ways, including gambling in an effort to continue to ascend into the heights of the holy polloi. Also, don't forget Cardano was a freaking genius and for whatever reason, probably just had the good sense not to get down in the mud with someone like Tartaglia, a bulldog of a man and not someone you would want as an enemy. So Cardano went with a plan B. His secretary, the aforementioned Ludvico Ferrari, happened to be from the city of Bologna, where there was a rumor that there had been a professor at the university who had solved the cubic equation a couple decades earlier a guy by the name of Del Ferro. So plan B was to get independent corroboration of the solution. So Ferrari and Cardano began the quest to track down Del Ferro. Alas, the professor was dead. But all was not lost. Cardano was able to track down the son-in-law of Del Ferro, if you remember, Annabale della Nave, who, if you recall, was the only other person that Del Ferro told about a solution, the other one being Fiore. Now, to make things even better, Delanave also had the manuscript that his father-in-law wrote concerning his solution. The charm and money of Cardano was sufficient to secure a copy of this manuscript from Delanave. Now, at this point in the story, we really start to see Ferrari coming into his own. Now, Cardano's secretary starts to play this major role, and don't let the title of secretary mislead you. Ferrari may actually be the brightest of the bunch. I mean, parts of his life bear a striking resemblance to Evariste Galois. Like our tasty little Frenchman, he was politically passionate and would fight for his beliefs. It was during one such fight that the young man, that is Ferrari, lost all of his fingers on his right hand. Now, the other major similarity between Ferrari and Galois was in their mathematical abilities. Now, of all the Italian names I've been rattling off, Ferrari may actually be trying to be the best math mind of the bunch. Under Cardano's tutelage, the young man, while they were searching for Del Ferro, quickly advanced to the point that he not only came up with an independent cubic solution, he also obtained the first known solution to the quartic equation. And that is an equation that is working with four unknowns. 
So armed with all of this unexpected good fortune, which you could then add the cubic solution they obtained double verification of, thanks to Tartaglia and then the manuscript of Del Ferro, meant one hell of a book. But beyond just selling a bunch of copies, you have to wonder how aware these two men were concerned about uh, were concerning about what was about to happen. Cardano and his prodigy had discovered something during this process, at least I think so, something that would change the world. They may or may not have known it at the time, but part of me thinks that rare intellects like Cardano and Ferrari rarely worked together as closely as these men did. At least in private conversations, they must have felt that they had made a great leap forward in understanding the world of numbers. Mario Livio says this of the breakthrough. So I'm talking about this. They've decided to write another book after the menstruation book. So 10 years after. In 1545, that's how long it took them to get this all figured out. In 1545, Cardano published in the book regarded by many mathematicians as marking the beginning of modern algebra, unquote. So yeah, I guess they dropped another book. This one is entitled The Great Art or The Rules of Algebra, Book One. Nowadays, this book is known just as The Great Art, or in its original Latin, Ars Magna. This is great. Mario Livio continues, quote, In this book, Cardano explores in great detail the cubic and quartic equations and their solutions. He demonstrates for the first time that solutions may even involve square roots of negative numbers, quantities he interestingly calls sophistic, to be dubbed imaginary numbers in the 17th century, unquote. Now, not without its critics, including the French philosophic monolith René Descartes, but imaginary numbers and the beginning of a whole new level of human understanding were born within the pages of Ars Magna. Which brings me now to how unbelievably badass Garolamo Cardano is, historically speaking. Master of probabilities of games of chance, one of Europe's most renowned physicians, and now a pioneer in algebra in which he has just laid down Algebra Sergeant Pepper, or Math's Jaws. It's hard to underestimate the impact of this book. It had been 105 years since the invention of the printing press. This book hit at just the right time as generations had now passed, making this new technology widespread enough that you could legitimately have, for the first time, bestsellers. And the great art was a huge ass hit all over Europe. And as I'm prone to say, as I work my way through the history of algebra, nothing has been the same since. After the book was all but flying off the shelves, Cardano and his ingenue Ferrari skyrocketed to fame. It's probably because it contained the impossible. The answer not only to the cubic, but of the quartic equation too. If you could believe it. This brings to light an all but forgotten part of Cardano's genius. For yes, he certainly did change things. His clear, concise breakdown of the rules of he and Ferrari knew concerning algebra caught a society primed for any sort of answer to something that was considered beyond human ability to achieve. Not only had they provided all the details of the solutions, they did the more important part of making legitimate what had been disregarded at best and under all-out assault at most. The concept of functioning complex numbers, without which major facets of our world would not be possible. It must be a heck of a thing to accomplish the impossible. In the extended telephone game of mimetic theory, the idea of the cubic's impossibility had been replaced with the idea that all things mathematical lay at man's feet. After almost 150 years of failure, a more clear picture of the nature of numbers was starting to form in the minds of human beings. The idea was felt in all areas that fell under the purview of the Renaissance. It was an all-encompassing term, possessing the unique ability to describe not only a time, but a place, 
a person, and an idea, of which an underlying foundation was optimism. Man was once again going to matter in the measure of things. So yeah, he did that. Go Cardano. Not to be one to rest on his laurels, Cardano also set a new standard when it comes to disseminating information. Before him, knowledge was a cloistered hidden world of passwords and punishment. After Cardano, people began to share their knowledge with one another. We can see some of our own world in the events that transpire next, because publishing one's work as well as the work of others was groundbreaking, it could also lead to negative consequences, especially when it came to the work of others, especially when it came to the work of Niccolo Tartaglia. For as popular and influential as Ars Magna was, it was nothing but a stone-cold betrayal to the stammerer. WTF, dude, you swore an oath. To make matters worse, Tartaglia's own book was published just mere months later, also including a solution to the cubic, and it was entitled, No One Gives a Shit. Actually, it was called New Problems and Inventions, which sounds like a Third Eye Blind album. Either way, no one did care, and their bearded Bressian was superfly TNT, guns and Navarone, pissed off. In his book that no one read, he declared that Cardano was nothing less than a plagiarizer. And worse, he had broken a solemn oath in order to do so. Now, at these times, these were not minor offenses. Great pain and even death were not uncommon for an oathbreaker. Now, there is some evidence to help us out here so we can be the judge. Now, in his book, The Ars Magna, Cardano writes, quote, In our own days, Scipione del Ferro of Bologna had solved the problem of the cube and the first power equal to a constant. A very elegant and admirable accomplishment. Since this art surpasses all human subtlety and the propacity of mortal talent and is truly a celestial gift and a very clear test of the capacity of men's mind, whoever applies himself to will believe that there is nothing that he cannot understand. In emulation of him, my friend Niccolo Tartaglia of Brescia wanted not to be outdone, solved the same case when he got into a contest with Scipione's pupil, Antonio Maria Fiore, and moved by my many entreaties, gave it at last to me, unquote. Now he goes on to say in another part of his book, quote, Scipione del Foro of Bologna, well nigh 30 years ago, discovered this rule and, and passed it on to Fiore of Venice, whose contest with Niccolo Tartaglia of Brescia gave Niccolo occasion to discover it. Tartaglia gave it to me in response to my entreaties, though withholding my demonstration. Armed with his assistance, I sought out its demonstration in various forms. This was very difficult. My version of it follows, unquote. So what do you think? I guess it depends on whether or not there was an oath. By modern standards, what Cardano had done was completely above bar. It is very common to cite another's work in the case that you have independent verification of another one's work that backs it up. It happens quite a bit. I'm sure there are protocols and unwritten rules to the process, but it is very common occurrence in the paper chase that is the modern scientific publication complex. Now, in any event, Tartaglia was not placated in the least by these breadcrumbs strewn about his feet. They were pearls before swine. He decided to take a nap a notch and compose the very first of his many cartellos, which, incidentally, was the official scientific network of the professionals of the day. Think of it like belonging to a large university or a think tank like Los Alamos or CERN in Europe. Their cartel system worked in a similar manner as to the copy all button does on an email list from one of those places. 
once someone requests a cartello and it is accepted, it is then sent to a central location, copied as many times as there are subscribers, and then sent to them all, everyone in medieval academia, all of Italy, most of France, southern Germany, northern Spain, Portugal, and England. So, you know, no one special. Tartaglia fired off the first of his half dozen or so communications that would travel to the farthest corners of Europe, all to call Cardano, who was by now widely respected and considered one of the greatest men of his generation, names. Now, I wish I could get my hands on some of the insults. I've read at least myself a half dozen references that these were insulting cartellos, but none of them have the actual words that were used. I've been searching for a long time. So instead, I have to do some historical recreation, which I want to thank uh, an author named Tinny Heath, who had a blog post on Renaissance insults. So I did a little research there. So I'm going to use some of what are, according to her, real Renaissance insults, sort of apply what I think Tartaglia uh, was writing about. Popular phrases from back then were telling someone that they were lying in their throat or wishing they would get dog worm, desiring to see them dragged, calling them a bespaller, which was probably definitely happening because it meant to spit or drool. And there's no doubt that Ferrari would have used that one against Tartaglia because, you know, he's the stammerer. This one here is not really attributed to either man, obviously, but instead comes from us from Palermo, Sicily. But I think it does a good job of summing up Tartaglia's position pretty effectively. It says, quote, you're lying in your throat like a rotten, evil ruffian, you cuckold and traitor, sir shit, cripple legs, mouth stinking bastard. You're no knight. And yeah, your wife is a rotten bitch harlot. R.I.P. Cardano. Which for his part, he never responded, probably thinking that the whole ordeal was beneath him. Like in the film, The Social Network, where Zuckerberg says in deposition that he, in fact, created Facebook and they, the Winklevosses, hadn't. If they could have, they would have, but they can't and they didn't. He had. Case closed. But that was not the case with the Cardano's protege, Ferrari. Always fiery of temper, he proceeded to answer each one of Tartaglia's accusatory and inflammatory cartellos, each time being as smarmy and trolly as possible. Each time he would click on the reply all button too. All in all, there were over a dozen total official scientific correspondence involving the Cardano-Ferrari-Tartaglia dispute. And I cannot get it out of my head that each time they had to have the letter copied and sent to everyone they knew and wanted to be respected by. Also, the, think about the crazy gaps in time. I mean, how long would it take for each step of the process to play out? I mean, we're talking over the course of 13 of them, probably years. Think about how often you check back to see if someone liked your tweet. I mean, that's merely seconds, and that can be grueling, but how about waiting months? Another aspect of this whole cartello business is how much it puts the people of the past in greater focus. No matter the distances between our cultures, there will always be a human reaction that we share in common. There's not one of us that has not wanted in certain circumstances to file our own cartellos when we have felt betrayed or aggrieved. When you think of it like that, then you can feel what Tartaglia was feeling, all that anger, which was directed at Cardano, but in reality, it was himself that he owed all that animosity to. I mean, how many times do you think it ran through his head if I had just worked harder on my book and gotten it published first? But alas, he did not. And don't forget, no one made him tell Cardano the secret, regardless of oaths and whatnot. His regret must have made him want to eat his own spleen. 
for Ferrari and by extension Cardano, the self-important trolling that was done throughout the public spectacle that literally spanned the continent at the expense of Tartaglia is all too familiar to us in our experience on social networks. Nobody likes a sore winner. And that brings me to the rest of the big brains of the day, the ones that subscribe to the Cartello system. Every few months, they would receive an official communication about all this seemingly insignificant squabble. But maybe it was much more than that. Those cartellos quite possibly were one of the most scientific public communications as it concerns the forming of what we call the modern world. First, and most importantly, it brought the ideas involved to hundreds if not thousands of like-minded people. This ability to spread far and wide was not new. However, the speed and consistency of the correspondence was, thanks to the printing press which was a technological game changer. In many ways, it reminds one of the seismic shift in our world that occurred a decade or so ago when social networks appeared on the scene. Second, a lot of influential people were witnessing one of the world's first public debates concerning intellectual property rights, something that will become a very important facet of our modern life. Each episode in this soap operatic spectacle contained not only the kernels of modern algebra, but it also established a foundation of how we are to judge who gets credit for ideas like algebra. By breaking the mold, Cardano's book displayed knowledge for general use, going a long way to what it means to find a mathematical solution. I mean, is it invented, created, viewed, obtained? For the first time in a long time, the Romans were probably the last civilization to consider such topics, the Western world was collectively mulling over the ideas that would coalesce into the life we have today. The great art is Giolamo Cardano's crowning achievement in a life full of them. The book, all that once, formed our 21st century concept of algebra and ideas. This bombastic force of nature of a man had been one hell of a hot streak up until this point. But as any gambler will tell you, no matter how good your system, sometimes the tables just turn. Sometimes luck starts to run out. And it did for Cardano as he aged. What should have been a glorious ride off into the sunset instead became an almost Jobsian exercise in pain and suffering. All the while, the protagonist kept on keeping on, no matter what the obstacle. For instance, he lost his medical certification. Thanks to his son, he had to resign in disgrace after his son was accused of attempting to murder his own wife during childbirth. Then the same son would factor prominently in Cardano being arrested for the Inquisition at the age of 70. Now, ostensibly, he was arrested, Cardano was, for casting the horoscope of Jesus Christ. But there were rumors that Cardano's son had taken in with his father's arch enemy, none other than the stammerer, Tartaglia himself, and there was an alleged deal struck between the two. The son of Cardano and Tartaglia, in which the son would assist in publicizing the Jesus horoscope, and Tartaglia would return the favor by getting the son a job as a torturer and executioner for the Inquisition. No one is sure if the son ever got the job, and the story is more than likely untrue, save for the part of the horoscope, which he did do, and the fact that Cardano actually did end up being tortured for it by the Inquisition. One has to imagine how much of this persecution was motivated by long-held grudges against a man like Cardano's temperament and all the success he had. But staying true to form, despite their best efforts, they couldn't break Cardano. He was released from prison and went right back to kicking ass Garolamo style. One of the first things he did, which was for the first time, he was 72 at this point, is cast his own horoscope. He said it foretold that he would die at the age of 75. So three years later, being in relatively perfect health, considering his ordeal, he decided that it was more important to be right than to be alive. So he drank poison and was pronounced dead 
on the 21st of September, 1576. That's some story. I mean, some of it is certainly fabricated, embellished, and invented, but a lot of it wasn't. And that brings me to the last of the big things that this feud over who gets credit for discovering a solution to one type of a cubic equation. By taking the argument continental, the influential thinkers of Europe were exposed to a breathtakingly simple and powerful idea and given some insight on how to deal with the next big scientific advance that was sure to come. Here's looking at you, Galileo. But it was not for either of these reasons that the big brains of the West were infected with the ideas of shared knowledge and of algebra. And I asked earlier, why in the hell would the dudes behind the cartello allow for so many, 13 of them, to continue to be copied and sent out? I mean, they were reportedly just crass and full of insults. Imagine you are a scholar in residence somewhere at the ass end of civilization like Scotland. Your days are boring and dreary. That is, until a new cartello arrives. Hungrily, you unscroll the document in the hopes that these two crazy muck sprouts would be yelling at each other again. Nothing makes the blokes down at the bleeding heart roar with laughter like the way those two Italian fellows lobbing their insults back and forth do. And lo and behold, there is something about the cubic in this one. Ha! This one starts off straight fire. Traitor, false cuckold, pimp, robber, thief, goat, ribald, heretic, sodomite, whore, and pimp. Twice, you call him a pimp twice. Get dogworm, for you have eaten Pharaoh's soup. Go hang yourself. Oh boy. After engorging on this feast of vitriol, our wise little scholar will be off to meet his chaps at the bar and quaff down some ale. Just like fourth grade me, returning from summer camp with tales of tail ends with rodent tails sticking out. For this, in some ways, is the most telling part of this whole story. The fact that it was the meaningless, the sideshow, that kept the momentum going for algebra. Not its efficacy, not its powerful new way of understanding the world, none of that high-thinking stuff at all. All that was required is someone or something to retell the story, spread the idea, replicate the meme. In most cases, the more crass, offensive, and vulgar the story, the more likely it is to survive the evolutionary algorithm. With all due respect to the author Dan Simmons, who used the same term in this series of novels, I'm going to call this process Darwin's Blade. Surviving Darwin's Blade in the world of memes means the same thing as it does in the world of genes, surviving in what we call the natural world. Surviving means that you have lived in a world of variation. That world or environment does not have enough sustenance to support every life, so selection takes place based on fitness for the particular environment, and lastly, with the ability to be replicated through preceding generations, success is copied. In part, algebra began to flourish because a bunch of ill-behaving Italian mathematicians were willing to air their dirty laundry in public. It might seem far-fetched, but the fact is, the story of Cardano and Tartaglia is still considered one of the wildest moments in the history of math. It is referenced all the time for its salacious content, the juicy bits that sharing with someone not only entertains them, but in a sense creates a bond. When something illicit is shared, then a modicum of trust is forged. It was for the same reason we pass along information today. It's funny. It makes us laugh. And this is very important. Makes the people you pass it along to laugh as well. For this is not actually about the content of the idea. I mean, most of us think that algebra is pretty boring. But if someone is calling someone else a feral soup-eating double pimp, man, that is some funny shite that I can't wait to be spread amongst my fellow fop-doodles and fusty-lugs. Because it would make them like me. And that is how we get to our current understanding of algebra. Not with rodents in our butts, of course, but with the concept of algebra hitching a ride on what was at that point in history considered something going viral.
In this case, it was the cartellos that carried the day. Starting back with Sargon and Sumeria and ending up in a tavern in BFE, sharing the funniest thing that you just read with your cronies. Which may sound like an inauspicious place to begin a revolution, but it begin it would. And would be through the stories that we have covered over these seven episodes chronicling the long history of algebra, most of which was spent in hiding, furtively skirting the lines of relevance until late, until it felt safe enough, normal enough, and human enough to be welcomed into our collective conscience.